This is Guns and Butter. The Global Warming Petition Project, uh, about over 31,000 scientists in the U.S. signed this. And the project that they signed on to was a statement quite clearly, there's no convincing scientific evidence that human release of carbon dioxide, methane, or other greenhouse gases is causing or will in the foreseeable future cause catastrophic heating of Earth's atmosphere or disruption of the Earth's climate. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, William Engdahl. Today's show, Myths, Lies, Oil, and Climate Wars. William Engdahl is an international political analyst and author. He is currently visiting professor of geopolitics at Northwest University, Xi'an, China. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics, and the New World Order. Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the control of oil, food, and money. Today we discuss his article, The Dark Story Behind Global Warming, also known as Climate Change, and his book, Myths, Lies, and Oil Wars. William Engdahl, welcome again. Well, thank you, Bonnie. I'm very happy to be with you again. You begin your article, The Dark Story Behind Global Warming, also known as Climate Change, with a reference to the recent UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Conference, the IPCC, that took place in South Korea. The discussion at the conference was how to drastically limit global temperature rise due to man-made emissions of greenhouse gases, especially CO2. What are some of the underlying premises or assumptions that this IPCC conference is basing its discussions on? Well, the IPCC, and they've they've been crying wolf now for, for years, and each time they set a target uh, and uh, a date that if this doesn't, uh, if we don't reduce world CO2 emissions by 40% in the next 12 years, that's the latest version, uh, then uh, world temperature is going to go on average above 1.5 degrees from where it is now. And that's going to create a tipping point that uh, is going to just uh, mean the end of civilized life as we know it. And then the IPCC, in addition to that, is calling for something horrendously draconian called zero net emissions of CO2 by 2050, which would require a complete ban on gasoline or diesel engine for cars, trucks, absolutely no coal power plants. World agriculture uh, would, would be transformed you know, huge, huge shifts in, in uh, our, our standard of living and our world, our world economy. And, uh, oh, they're, they're advocating all sorts of other things. But when you read through the report, it's, it's more or less a warmed over version of, of the last report. They're just trying to uh, 
scare the world into investing more than $2 trillion a year on uh, reducing the CO2 carbon footprint, as they call it, on the planet. And uh, it's a little bit bizarre how, how they come to this uh, theory that, that uh, man-made emissions of carbon dioxide are destroying life on this planet. That just there's no verifiable, serious scientific uh, investigation that has confirmed that. They're all done by computer models. And of course, you put garbage into a computer model, you get garbage out. What would the IPCC recommendations require, and are they feasible? They would require a complete change in the living standard of the industrial world in, in the north part of our planet, and a dramatic reduction of the economic development in the so-called developing world or the third world countries. And uh, $2.4 trillion a year investment to do this is what they're calling for. And this, you have immediately to look at the major global banks that are lining up behind this and, and uh, chomping at the bit to get their hands on, on uh, you know, carbon credits and derivatives and carbon exchanges and all sorts of uh, financial gimmicks that they can use to to make a huge killing on, on this whole area. How has the International Panel on Climate Change killed legitimate scientific debate? Well, there virtually is no scientific debate. Uh, professors, serious professors, have been so stigmatized if they try to call for such a debate, they're attacked on the internet or in, in conferences as being something called, quote, climate change deniers. Now, if you know anything about how the CIA and intelligence services use neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, for example, conspiracy theory, that's one of these NLP phrases that the CIA came up with some decades ago to kill any discussion uh, of anyone who disagreed with them. And climate change denier is a similar kind of thing. It, you know, to use this kind of emotionally charged uh, attack on, on anyone who tries to have a debate with you about this is, uh, you know, opposite of the essence of true science. And then they proclaim simply flat out the debate over the science of climate change is well and truly over. Well, it's not over. It never really began because it hasn't been allowed. How is it that neuro-linguistic programming elicits this emotional reaction? Is it simply because of the use of labels? Well, the, the very special emotionally charged labels. Uh, the concept goes back to the godfather of, of Madison Avenue Spin, uh, Edward Bernays, back in the First World War, where he created these emotionally packed words to make propaganda to get America into the war when most Americans didn't want anything to do with the European war. So you have to choose emotionally loaded words like climate change deniers or conspiracy theory and so forth, where, where you create these eerie, ominous, negative uh, 
kind of uh, images that people become afraid unconsciously. Yes, and it seems like it automatically shuts down discussion and uh, it delegitimizes anything that you want to say. It, it, it shuts down thinking and research. Yeah, and completely. And uh, I, I have a quote that I want to share with your listeners here from some of the leading advocates of, of the, well, they used to call it uh, global warming. And then uh, back a few years ago, when they had more and more difficulty with evidence to support their warming thesis, because the temperatures weren't warming, they were flat for a number of years, and then even slightly going down, they uh, changed the linguistics there and called it climate change. Well, climate is constantly changing, weather is constantly changing, and the major influence on world climate and world weather is something that no global warming modeler puts into his computer model because it's far too complex to even uh, imagine modeling. So they ignore it altogether. And that's the greatest influence on world weather is the activity of the sun. If you think about it for a few minutes, the explosions on the sun, the intensity of solar eruptions, which uh, astrophysicists have documented this over, over literally over thousands of years through various painstaking means and so forth. And the explosions on the sun undergo cycles, cycles of more explosions per year and cycles of fewer explosions per year. And when there are more explosions per year, as you might expect, that creates a, a uh, uh, electromagnetic heating effect on, on the Earth's atmosphere and influences our weather, the temperature of the oceans, etc. And when those solar explosions are reduced, and this, this, this is the sun and its uh, natural cycles, it goes in cycles of 11 years, of 22 years, of 100, sometimes 200 years, and overlapping cycles, it's rather complex, but everything in the universe, one way or another, is, is uh, cyclical. Uh, has to do with resonances and frequencies, electromagnetic and otherwise. So the period that we've been in now since about the last three years is one of diminishing solar explosions. And the result of the diminishing is that we're having extremely hot, dry summers in the northern climates, like we had this last summer. And exceedingly cold winters and we're coming now into another I, I fear to say exceedingly cold winter in the northern hemispheres and uh, the upshot of this is going to wreak havoc over the next few years on world food supply and nobody because of this global warming uh, diversion uh, the world isn't even thinking about this in terms of preparing for alternative food production areas and parts of the world that might have a warmer uh, climate that can support agriculture. So, for example, in Europe this past summer, you had horrendous losses of crops, grain crops and others by farmers. 
And the uh, political establishment immediately started saying this is because of global warming or climate change. And uh, because it was getting pretty warm here for Europe, they said this is global warming. They came back to that phrase, a little bit opportunistic. Um, and you're going to have some pretty serious climate effects like you had in the 19. Uh, 29, early 30s in, in the Midwest United States, where we had uh, the Dust Bowl phenomenon. Uh, this, this had a huge effect on the Great Depression. So it's all kind of interrelated, and we're, we're completely ignoring serious discussion about what, what this might be and how to, you know, how to uh, protect ourselves against uh, catastrophic crop losses because of cooling. Is there scientific evidence to support the claim that the world's climate is warming due to anthropomorphic-caused CO2 emissions? This gets into an area where uh, I can just say the reports that I've read pick apart the premises of these computer models so effectively. It, it's, it's not been proven. It's not been proven because man-made in comparison with the eruptions of the sun, the effect of, of man-made emissions, of course you can have localized effects in the city if you have uh, 7 million cars in Peking, China, uh, in a traffic jam, uh, you know, puffing out uh, exhaust fumes or uh, other things. Those have localized effects, but that, that is changing the world climate, this so-called greenhouse effect. There's no model I know of that's proved it because they can't prove it. They fake the data. Uh, I'll give you a, a few quotes to illustrate. One of the professors at the Hadley Center for Climate Prediction in, in the UK, which was involved in this email uh, climate gate scandal a few years ago, Professor Chris Fallon said uh, some time ago, he said, the data doesn't matter. We're not basing our recommendations on the data. We're basing them on the climate models. <laughs> and then uh, a climate modeler from Oxford University, supposedly a serious academic institute in the UK, David Frame, said the models are convenient fictions that provide something very useful. Uh, or the founder of Greenpeace, Paul Watson, doesn't matter what's true. It only matters what people believe is true. So, uh, but you have to you have to go back to where, where this originally comes from, I think, to better understand what the game is here. I'm speaking with independent writer and geopolitical critic, William Engdahl. Today's show, Myths, Lies, Oil, and Climate Wars. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you write that recently the head of the UN IPCC proclaimed, quote, the debate over the science of climate change is well and truly over. This sounds like the popularized the end of history claim. Is this proclamation a way to shut down scientific discussion? Well, they certainly hoped it would be, but it, uh, you know, it hasn't done that. Most most people, uh, climate change, at least in, in the U.S. And, and most of the developing world, as far as I'm concerned, are, are 
climate change or global warming is not the number one item on their agenda. You know, the Chinese are making solar reflectors to corner the world market on solar reflectors because it's a market they can make money in. But, uh, you know, they're not turning China into a uh, solar reflecting uh, landscape by any means. What does the Global Warming Petition Project, signed by over 31,000 American scientists, say? The Global Warming Petition Project, uh, over 31,000 scientists in the U.S. signed this. And the project that they signed on to was a statement, quite clearly, there's no convincing scientific evidence that human release of carbon dioxide, methane, or other greenhouse gases is causing or will, in foreseeable future, cause catastrophic heating of Earth's atmosphere or disruption of the Earth's climate. There's substantial scientific evidence that increases in atmospheric CO2 can produce beneficial effects on natural plant and animal environments of the Earth. Try growing plants without CO2. And if you if you're concerned about CO2, plant more trees instead of you know cutting down the rainforests and the Amazon and so forth to plant soybeans for Monsanto and, and Bayer. Based on future prediction, what is the tipping point of irreversibility that uh, is being claimed? Well, there have been fiction movies made of this, uh, that when the tipping point is reached, the Arctic icebergs will melt and that will somehow flood Manhattan so that the, uh, you know, the financial center of the world is underwater and uh, all sorts of cities along the coastways around the world will be underwater and uh, uh, just horrendous global catastrophes. Now we've, you know, there the opportunism has gone to the point where any hurricane or any uh, drought or any period of slightly longer sunshine than the normal like we had in, in the past summer, uh, that's cited without proof, of course, uh, as evidence of global warming coming close to the tipping point. And the world has always had hurricanes and volcano eruptions and all these things. So, uh, you know, this is just chicken little and the sky is falling. What are some of the dire warnings of catastrophe predicted by the UN Environmental Program? You've just mentioned a few. Yeah, well, uh, going back to 1982, the director of the UNEP, Mostafa Tolba, said the world faces an ecological disaster as final as nuclear war within a couple decades unless governments act now to reduce uh, CO2. And a couple of decades from 1982, by my mathematics, would be around 2002. That is about 16 years ago. And the the governments have by and large not acted now. And the environmental catastrophe is not manifested. We have other catastrophes by lack of investment in infrastructure and and various uh, economic decisions that have been canceled out by the financial crisis in 2008 and and such things. But those are are policy decisions of of governments and and, uh, 
politicians and not not climate. What about the data from computer models that these predictions are based on? How reliable is this data? Well, it's not reliable at all. There's so many things that can be cited on this. The models are, are mostly pure theoretical models. They're not real. And it, there are no empirical records that can verify these models. So uh, they're based on so many uncertainties. And the actual real climate is a nonlinear dynamical system. It's so complex, you couldn't make computer models to, to program this. And certainly not to the point of one-tenth of one degree, plus or minus, the way they claim in, in so many years to be able to do. It's just they don't understand cycles of climate. They don't understand uh, uh, solar eruptions. They don't understand the solar system. Most of these climate modelers are, are computer nerds. <laughs> Excuse me, but... Uh, and uh, they don't look at all into solar cycles, which is the most profound influence, as I said earlier, on Earth climate and weather. And how is the climate related to the activity of the sun? Now, you've already talked about, um, well, I guess the coronal mass ejections from the sun, the explosions. Uh, the sun can be highly active or, or, or not. Um, yeah. Now, what other effects does the solar system, and, and particularly the sun, have on the Earth in terms of, well, does it affect earthquakes? This is a completely fascinating aspect that needs much more uh, attention, in, in my view. And that is when solar activity, as it is in the last two or three years, is greatly reduced because of the sun being in a particular phase of uh, its own cycles, that reduction in solar activity correlates historically over centuries with eruption of volcanoes. And if you uh, look at the volcanic activity, this past year we've had volcanoes erupting three within a matter of a few days in Indonesia recently. And uh, all, all around, uh, there's something like 34 major volcanoes that have erupted worldwide so far this year compared to 12 all of last year and 11 in the year before that, 2015. And as people may know, there's this thing in the Pacific called the Ring of Fire, and that's a ring of volcanoes uh, around the Pacific Ocean from Indonesia and, and uh, uh, Hawaii and, and, and so forth. And so far this year in the Ring of Fire, six volcanoes have erupted. Volcanoes are erupting in, in Italy and Mexico and Africa, it's a big, big, big uh, increase of volcanic activities. At the same time, you have this tremendous reduction of the uh, solar energy coming to Earth. So how that interacts, how that works, and how, how we can better understand it, I think is a far more burning priority for life on this planet than the whole focus on uh, unproven man-made climate change or global warming. 
What did Australian IT expert and independent researcher John McLean's detailed analysis of the IPCC climate report reveal? Well, McLean did a very thorough and very interesting analysis of of, uh, the data set used by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel uh, at the UN. It's called HADCRUT4, and that is used, that that data set is used to justify uh, this call for trillions of dollars to be spent on combating climate change. But then he, he points out uh, huge errors in, in HADCRUT 4 that the IPCC used. He said it's about the standard of a first-year university student with, filled with errors, careless amateurish uh, work. And he said, uh, for example, there are places where temperature averages were calculated with almost no data, no information. And for two years, temperatures on land in the Southern Hemisphere were estimated from only one site in Indonesia. And in another instance that he discovered, the Caribbean island St. Kitts, they recorded a temperature of zero degrees for an entire month on two occasions. Well, if anybody can verify temperature in a Caribbean island uh, for more than one month of zero degrees, uh, I would find that very interesting. I don't think that's at all accurate, but they just put garbage in there and then crunch it out in the computer and they say, this is our scientific uh, product. Well, that's, that's basically what the kind of thing that he exposed. Your book, Myths, Lies, and Oil Wars, covers, among other subjects, the political and geopolitical history of the climate change, global warming movement. How and when did all of this get started? This goes back to something uh, a couple of MIT computer guys, uh, Meadows and Forrester, uh, and the Rockefeller family, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, financed in the end of the 60s, early 70s, as part of a strategy of controlling the rate of independent industrialization of other countries in the world, in in Europe, but especially in Africa and and Latin America and Asia, because that would challenge their ability to control the world through the dollar system. So they put out a neo-Malthusian deindustrialization agenda And it was started by something the Rockefellers created called the Club of Rome. Uh, That was done in the, as I say, in the beginning of the 70s. David Rockefeller for years was a a member of the executive board of the Club of Rome. And they created a, a wealth of NGOs such as the, or think tanks called like the Aspen Institute, World Watch Institute, and then, of course, I mentioned the MIT Limits to Growth Report, which was another one of these things based on uh, simply computer models uh, that were going to run out of resources and uh, the world living standard is going to collapse, so we better prepare by collapsing it now. And a crucial agent of this transformation, I would call him, he's no longer living, but... uh, 
He was uh, a lifelong crony of David Rockefeller's, a Canadian oil man of all things. Uh, Petro Canada was one of his companies, billionaire, multi-billionaire, named Maurice Strong. And Maurice Strong and Rockefeller colluded to use the United Nations back in 1972 to draw attention to limits to resources, the thesis that they were pushing at that point, uh, by creating something in Stockholm called the Earth Day Conference. And uh, they, among other things, called for an agenda of dramatic population reduction and lowering of living standard around the world to, quote, save the environment. And Alexander King, who was one of the founders of, of Rockefeller's Club of Rome and who later worked for NATO, admitted in his book, The First Global Revolution, he said, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine and the like would fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention. The real enemy then is humanity itself. And what they don't talk about is uh, the effect of the policies of 147 global banks and multinational corporations who determine the environment. They blame it on human beings. So you, you blame it on uh, uh, disenfranchised peasants in, in Guatemala or in, in uh, Rwanda who are driven off the land by, by uh, the globalization of uh, corporate agriculture and then forced to go into the cities and, and create uh, ecological uh, problems because they themselves are, are uh, their whole sustenance has, has been destroyed by this. So you focus on humanity, make man guilty, and uh, then come up with this some things like uh, Agenda 21 from the United Nations, which is this sustainable economy idea. I'm speaking with independent writer and geopolitical critic William Engdahl. Today's show, Myths, Lies, Oil, and Climate Wars. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, yes, you point out in your book that Maurice Strong whom you've been talking about, was the founding director of a new agency, the UN Environment Program. And then the UN Environment Program sponsored the setting up of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 1988. And that Maurice Strong also set up the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change to stage the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992. Now, you've just mentioned Agenda 21, the UN's Agenda 21. Was Maurice Strong behind Agenda 21 as well? And, and what exactly is Agenda 21? Agenda 21, it's a green agenda that is, it's the extension politically of, of the climate change uh, idea to create local agencies in municipalities all around the world to promote the idea of dramatic reduction of living standards 
to uh, prevent, uh, you know, uh, climate disaster or whatever uh, uh, they want to call it. It deals with governance of nations, education, public health, a kind of religious reverence for nature. By the way, I I love nature. It's uh, every normal human being does, and you don't want to have uh, despoiled nature. But but uh, uh, the way that they promote this nature is higher than man. And uh, so they want to awaken global consciousness, uh, this whole new age kind of thing. But the uh, the whole zero growth idea is, is embedded in, in this Agenda 21. They basically want to have a huge transfer of wealth from the northern hemisphere, from the industrialized countries, to the southern, uh, supposedly, but in reality, if you examine it closely, what they are talking about, they're talking about reducing the living standard in the industrial OECD countries to that of Africa or uh, poorer parts of Asia rather than bringing Africa and Asia up to our living standards. So it's, it's a huge scam. It's, it's a totalitarian uh, agenda that is um, being promoted under the name of, of sustainable development, rather. Well, what were the motives behind the influential Rockefeller group in the development and encouragement of climate change activism. Their agenda is to control economic development in the world because if, if that development is allowed to take place in a natural way, as Henry Kissinger documented in a national security report he drafted in the early 1970s for Nixon and later for Gerald Ford, the NSSM 200, uh, those countries would naturally develop strategic raw materials, uranium, uh, precious metals, rare earth metals, uh, oil, gas, whatever, for their own economic development, and it wouldn't be available for the national security needs of the United States. You write that the circles backing the Club of Rome used rational concern for ecological catastrophe for quite different ends. What were their ends? To stop industrialization. The, uh, it's very much like what's happening uh, with Washington today vis-a-vis -vis China and uh, made in China 2025 uh, economic uh, five-year plan that they're in right now. And that is that the, or about to come into, uh, the idea that uh, developing nations could achieve equality in terms of technological standpoint with key nations in, in the uh, group of six or group of seven, uh, that's not to be allowed. That, that is strictly to be stopped at all costs. And that's what, what the whole Club of Rome uh, agenda was back in the 1960s. You had a rebuilding of Europe after after the Second World War. You had Europe in a very state-of-the-art technological level compared with the U.S., which had done most of its infrastructure investment back during 
the end of the 30s, preparing for World War II. And then you had uh, Europe lending Germany, especially France and so forth, uh, providing credits uh, to former colonies or, or countries they had trade with in Africa, Asia and elsewhere to uh, build those economies up and create new markets for German exports or French exports. And what that was doing in the eyes of, of the gods of money at the banks of Wall Street or, or the people like David Rockefeller, that was ultimately a threat to the global control through the dollar system, Bretton Woods and so forth, of the United States, that their United States, not, not the United States of the American people. So they wanted to stop growth, or at least put the brakes on strong enough that uh, you uh, wouldn't have a threat of, of independent, economically self-reliant uh, countries. What was the 1001 Nature Trust created in 1971, and who founded this Nature Trust? Well, formerly the head of the Bilderberg Group, uh, uh, Prince Bernhardt of the Netherlands, formerly founded and, and was the head of something called the 1001 Nature Trust. It was an invitation-only elite club with 1001 of the world's wealthiest people who would pledge an annual support for the World Wildlife Fund, today called the Worldwide Fund for Nature. And Prince Bernhardt is an interesting, or was an interesting character. He was a former Nazi party member and went on to uh, become the nominal head of the Bilderberg meetings, which was set up, uh, proposed by the CIA back in the 1950s to create a linkage between hand-selected European uh, banking and business elites with the United States banking and business elites. But the 1001 Nature Trust, uh, the list included, of course, David Rockefeller and Rockefeller's uh, intimate friend, Johnny Agnelli of Fiat in Italy, Robert O. Anderson, who was then the chairman of Atlantic Richfield Oil Company, uh, Viscount Astor from Great Britain, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, Alexander King, that I mentioned as co-founder of the Club of Rome, the uh, key figure in the German steelmaker Krupp, Bertolt Beitz from Germany. Uh, there were European aristocracy, Prince Johannes von Turnen Taxis, Baron Heinrich Thyssen Bernamisa, Prince Franz Josef II von Liechtenstein, his son Prince Hans Adam, Aga Khan, Henry Ford II, John Lawton of Royal Dutch Shell, Greek shipowner, billionaire Stavros Miarkos, Baron Edmund the Rothschild of France, and uh, yeah, Saudi Sheikh Salim bin Laden. Interesting name, interesting family. So uh, these are the people who wanted to create this ecological uh, movement that would say, biggest problem is in the world is population. We must set a ceiling to human uh, numbers. Well, what interest did the world's richest men have in the World Wildlife Fund? I think on one level, they really had this uh, idea of reducing 
and they still do, reducing global population dramatically and having game preserves uh, all around, not only Africa, but, uh, you know, all over the place that uh, they could use to their enjoyment. How did Lester Brown's World Watch Institute in Washington get started? Lester Brown is another protege of, of the Rockefeller circles. That uh, if you want to understand American geopolicy, geopolitical policy, and economic policy since the time of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s, you have to look at the family Rockefeller and the circles around them that they uh, uh, that provided them the think tanks and, and so forth. And the Rockefeller Brothers Fund back in 1974, when the world was debating oil shocks and shortages and vulnerabilities and so forth, gave a half a million dollars uh, and combined that with funds from a Rockefeller friend, Robert O. Anderson of the Aspen Institute and the Arco Oil Company to uh, a former employee of the Rockefellers Foundation named Lester Brown to create an NGO advocacy called World Watch Institute in Washington dedicated to uh, something called environmental activism. And this was the first think tank devoted to analysis of global environment issues. And uh, he advocated a Malthusian version of world population explosion, outstripping the ability of the planet to feed itself, and therefore classical Malthus, the population reduction is a priority. This is a Rockefeller theme since uh, back when they funded eugenics uh, in the Third Reich under Hitler. So Lester Brown uh, was a supporter of Rockefeller's Green Revolution and also back to the peak oil idea of King Hubbard that I mentioned earlier. I'm speaking with independent writer and geopolitical critic William Engdahl. Today's show, Myths, Lies, Oil and Climate Wars. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that for the Rockefeller NGOs in the early 1970s, the theme was energy crisis used to promote resource control and calling it conservation. Conservation, in turn, was to be used to demand reduction in overall living standards, in other words, austerity. How does, yeah. aus- how does austerity for the general population serve the interests of the super wealthy? It's complex, but in general, it's the idea of one faction in the world political map controlling and dominating uh, everything. And it goes back to a quote that I uh, have used quite often in my, in my books from Henry Kissinger back during the 1970s when there was simultaneously an orchestrated oil crisis and a food crisis, grain crisis because of harvest failures in the Soviet Union back then and Kissinger's uh, grain deal with the Russians. And Kissinger back then uh, allegedly said, uh, if you control oil, you control entire nations or groups of nations. If you control food, you control the people. 
And if you control money, you control the entire world. And that basically is, is and was their agenda back, back then. To control oil, they would had a pretty good uh, handle on that. Uh, OPEC was, was uh, under the thumb of, of the Rockefellers and right up until the present, more or less. If you look at what uh, Trump and Prince uh, Salman in Saudi Arabia have for a relationship. Uh, and food, look at the industrialization of agriculture, which was another Rockefeller Foundation uh, project going back to the 1950s. The uh, agribusiness creation and the creation of GMOs all goes back to these Rockefeller circles and the research grants that they gave. So it's it's a mad agenda. It's it's an inhuman agenda, but that doesn't say uh, that there aren't influential people with mad agendas. Uh, this certainly is one of them. You ask the question: Why would the leading figures in the world of Anglo-American oil and the banking establishment create and finance a movement ostensibly aimed at reducing industrial growth? and ultimately lowering consumption of petroleum. It sounds completely contrary to their vested interests. Why do you think they are doing this? Oh, but they've never lowered the consumption of petroleum. It's grown every year uh, since then. They simply want to, the whole point of peak oil and all these other things, or the wars that they made, Iraq and Iran war in the 1980s, is to control the oil. The idea is control of oil as, as a uh, silent weapon for quiet wars, as, as one uh, fascinating book describes it. And the idea is you use global warming, all these other things to control industrialization. And then if you control the supply of something, the price goes up through the roof. So this is, uh, this is a major part of the game. Well, the whole theory of peak oil has always struck me as a way to keep the price up. Yeah. And then when the price went up uh, back in 2008 to $143 a barrel, uh, you had this huge campaign about peak oil. And so people said, oh, well, what can we do about it? We're running out of oil. <laughs> and we've been running into oil ever since then. So I don't... Could you talk about the main themes of your book, Myths, Lies, and Oil Wars? The book basically is a look at the history of the families that have controlled oil worldwide over the past century and the wars that have been waged for that control of oil, the lies that have been uh, used to justify that, the the way that the Rockefeller and Rothschild groups, Rothschild being the dominant force behind Royal Dutch Shell in Europe, uh, British Petroleum, which used to be the Anglo-Persian Oil Company in Iran, and the Rockefeller Oil Company group in the United States, Standard Oil Companies, Sukoni, Mobil, Exxon, and, and whatnot they're called today. And how they promoted a fraudulent energy model called peak oil through a, a geologist with Royal Dutch Shell in Houston back in the 1950s named King Hubbard. He was kind of an interesting character 
uh, a bit of a fan of Mussolini during the 1930s. And uh, Hubbard was predicting back, back then, it goes into great detail about how King Hubbard, back in 1956, estimated that the totality of world's potential oil reserves would be about 1,250 billion barrels and some, let's see, 56 would be about 62 years to uh, 2008. Uh, in 2008, the British Petroleum Review of World Energy estimated total world oil reserves between 1.8 trillion and 2.2 trillion barrels. That's uh, almost double what King Hubbard estimated in 1956. So the Hubbard projections uh, were just nonsense, but they served the aim of Royal Dutch Shell. He showed it to his his uh, boss at, at Shell in Houston at the time. He said, okay, as long as your speech to the American Petroleum Institute doesn't uh, promote this idea that we're swimming in oil, I have no problem. So it, it's, uh, you know, this is the famous Pico. And what I go through in great detail in the book is the Russians during the Cold War were mandated by Stalin to make Russia or the Soviet Union energy independent in terms of oil and gas, because if they had to depend, as Germany did during the Second and First World Wars, on Rockefeller-controlled oil sources, that was pretty risky. So the group of Russian physicists and chemists and geochemists and geophysicists and geologists formed uh, interdisciplinary research teams to find the answer for the genesis of, of hydrocarbons. And they laughed when they went through all the literature in, in the West at the idea that, that oil or gas come from the uh, treatise of dead dinosaurs or uh, algae or leaves from trees or other so-called fossil fuels, uh, biological origins of petroleum. They said, no, petroleum is abiotic. It comes from the deep bowels of the earth. Uh, the core of the earth is a huge radioactive oven constantly burning. And it's constantly spewing gases that go through tiny cracks in the mantle of the earth. And... Uh, then those gases interact with ferrite or other uh, elements and create either petroleum or coal or coal tar or uh, gas, natural gas, or even diamonds, which is a, a carbon product under certain temperature and pressure conditions. And that's the origins of petroleum. And what they found, the, the, the Soviet scientists, is that the deepest wells, at least, the biggest wells around the world, were self-replenishing. If you close them in, and this has been done after the Cold War in, in places like Tatarstan in the, in the Russian Federation, wells that were closed in because they thought they had pulled all the oil out in the end of the Soviet era, that they could, and they subscribed, unfortunately, to the Western ideology uh, that oil was a, you know, a finite resource. They closed them in, and 20 years later, 
some of the geologists involved with this uh, classified Russian research on abiotic oil uh, said, let's go back in and reopen some of those wells. And lo and behold, they found that those wells had, reservoirs had refilled, that they were self-replenishing wells because the source comes from deep in the, in the bowels of the earth, in the core of the earth. So this is, this is quite a bombshell, and it's something that's been largely, even, even by some of the Russian companies who don't want the world to know that uh, oil is, is so abundant, uh, they use this to, uh, you know, to try to keep the price high. Unfortunately, they couldn't stick with the, with the, uh, the mantra when uh, it was decided to develop shale oil in the U.S., uh, for other political reasons, they kind of had to drop the peak oil uh, mantra. So you don't hear so much about that anymore, but it's, it's uh, fascinating history as to the real origins of oil and how that was covered up by the leading Anglo-American uh, oil giants over the past hundred years. Well, now, if it turns out that oil is a replenishable resource, why would they want to develop shale oil? Well, it's a question of accessibility, and uh, uh, you don't have all the oil in, in the continental United States. Uh, so they discovered techniques to blast this out of the, out of the shale rock in, in these formations in West Texas and uh, the Dakotas and, and uh, Bakken and places like that and Pennsylvania. And uh, that's what they're doing. But the, the problem with the shale oil is it's, it's a Ponzi scheme of the Wall Street banks that finance it and so forth. And the depletion rates are dramatically faster than uh, the depletion rates for uh, conventional oil. So I, I would estimate by best calculations that I've seen, within four or five years, we're going to have a dramatic decline in production from the Permian Basin wells, shale wells in West Texas and other places. Are there any other themes in your book, a myth, lies, and oil wars, that you'd like to mention? Well, it goes into considerable detail and fascinating detail on the wars over oil that the Rockefeller political circles instigated, including the the uh, whole situation with the Shah of Iran uh, and the Khomeini revolution there in, in the late 1970s to create this world apparent oil shortage to keep the price uh, artificially high. Uh, the Saddam Hussein thing with the, how the State Department incur enticed him into invading uh, Kuwait and that was the excuse for Operation Desert Storm for the U.S. to bomb Saddam back to the Stone Age and put a, a no-fly zone over Iraq before they went in in 2003 for the final destruction of Iraq. But all that has to do with oil and how how, the, how this works. It's a it's a bloody story. It's an ugly story, and it's a fascinating story that's rarely been told in in, in this form, to my knowledge. William Engdahl, thank you so much. Thank you, Bonnie. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, yeah. What it is, ain't 
I've been speaking with William Engdahl. Today's show has been Myths, Lies, Oil, and Climate Wars. William Engdahl is an international political analyst, economist, and author. He is author of The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, about the CIA and political Islam, and Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance, about the National Endowment for Democracy and its role in regime change. He is also the author of Myths, Lies, and Oil Wars, the subject of today's program. His books are available through his website at williamengdahl.com. That's williamengdahl.com. Email him at info at williamengdahl.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G, and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now, the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?